about history from a whole new context. Welcome to Podtextualizing the Past. Hi, I'm Dr. Sue Stanfield with the History Department at the University of Texas at El Paso. And today we're going to discuss witches and witchcraft trials in early New England. You know, typically we think of this as only happening in Salem, but people, mostly women, were accused of witchcraft in other areas of New England. And so today we're speaking with Dr. Bridget Marshall, an English professor at the University of Massachusetts at Lowell. And uh, this is actually our second podcast featuring her. Um, But my guess is most of you will listen to this one first. So thank you so much for coming back a second time. Thanks for having me. Um, I guess to begin with, um, the idea of, of witchcraft and accusing people of this isn't unique to, to British North America, that it was occurring in Europe before uh, the first colonies were established. So I was wondering, did the, the British colonists, did their attitudes about this come from, from these European experiences? Absolutely. So uh, people in England and on the continent uh, believed in witches. and But we also want to acknowledge, though, that the beliefs were not monolithic. So it's not like everybody had the same beliefs. Um, there's a lot of regional variations and also by country. Um, and there were also folks who did not believe, even in the 16th and 17th centuries. So um, Reginald Scott, who published A Discovery of Witches in 1584, was really trying to debunk witchcraft belief and suggested non-supernatural reasons for most accusations of witchcraft. Um, But on the other side, powerful folks uh, argued that, no, there definitely are witches. Uh, In 1597, King James of Scotland and then later of England uh, published this compendium called the Demonology that uh, definitely asserted witches are real and told you how to put them on trial and how you should punish them. So those big picture general beliefs, but also regional lore, is what people brought with them when they came to uh, settle in the early colonies. Um, And that sort of informed their their beliefs once they arrived here. So I know that most, if not all, I'm not positive, of the, the sort of outbreaks or accusations happen in New England rather than the Chesapeake. And I was wondering, you know, they're both British. Is it just a difference in religion or, or why is this a, a, more women in New England? I'm not sure. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, but one thing I found out actually from a student project is that there actually were witchcraft cases down in the Chesapeake colonies. Um, there's one big case of, of Grace Sherwood in 1706. Um, and a student of mine fig- found out about it because there's a statue in Virginia Beach to this witch, uh, this accused witch. Again, I, I should probably put all of the the word witch every time I use it should be in scare quotes, which I know you can't see me doing uh, in an audio podcast, but by which I mean someone accused of being witchcraft, of doing witchcraft. I don't actually believe people were literally like standing beside cauldrons with pointy hats or anything. Um, anyway, so there were cases in the Chesapeake. There seem to be not as many, and I can't really account for that. Um, but the ones in the New England colonies were definitely um, very popular with historians, I guess. So you see a lot of coverage of those cases in the history books because there's so many scholars who get interested in it. But there were cases in the Chesapeake. That's so interesting to think about. I mean, did the New Englanders just keep better records so historians had something to look at or, you know, talk about it? I'm always amazed why we why we study what we study, you know, what what teases off to say this is 
this is the instance. Absolutely. I think that would be a great question to, to dig into. And there, there may be some folks out there who have done that work, but I've mostly focused on the New England trials, just continuing that cycle, I suppose, of yeah. New England witches being more well-known. So, um, and I will say, I stumbled all over myself writing these questions because I was wanting to avoid saying anyone was a witch. So <laughs> the awkward witchcraft accusations, you know, witchcraft trials. So I right. might follow your lead and just, I got my scare quotes too. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm good. wondering um, what were the characteristics or the situations uh, that made someone more likely to be accused of being a witch? Yeah. So um, in 1974, Paul Boyer and Steve Nissenbaum, they put out a great book that's uh, a lot of people look at for talking about Salem. It's called Salem Possessed, The Social Origins of Witchcraft. And they create what they call a collective portrait of who the Salem witches were that I think is fairly useful for looking at the other uh, many other cases as well. And they have three key um, themes that they found. One is uh, people who are outsiders in the community. The second is people who were mobile. So we often see people who have moved from town to town, from community to community, they become uh, victims of, of, or they become the accused. And the third is lacking in deference, which is a term that might refer to something like religiously, like they're not practicing or they're not participating enough in religious services, but it may also be a lack of deference towards their social superiors. Um, you know, are you behaving in the right way? And I think those are three really useful um, categories to think about that, that many of the accused were in. Um, a big, you mentioned this, I think, in your first question, they were mostly women. You can't avoid that. Um, in Salem, 14 out of the 19 people who were executed for witchcraft were women. And in trials across New England, the pattern's very similar. There's a huge overrepresentation of women. Um, Carol Carlson has a book, Devil in the Shape of a Woman, and she looked at 344 cases uh, in, this is all New England cases, 1620 to 1725, and 78% of them were female. Um, so there's really no denying that this is largely women who are accused. Um, Carlson's research also shows that women who were over the age of 40 were more likely to be accused, and women who were alone, whether they were single or widowed, um, those are the more likely women to be accused. And that, that's what made you more vulnerable to prosecution. Um, a See, lot now of people, I'm nervous. <laughs> I know, me too. Me too. Believe me. Um, so sometimes people think that, oh, these were, because I mentioned they were often marginal or outsiders. And sometimes people assume that means economically, like they were poor. And in many cases they were. I think that's a, that's definitely a stereotype that we have. But there were actually quite a few who either had money or were in a position that they likely would be inheriting money or land. And so some women who were in positions of some economic privilege actually were also accused and sometimes targeted because um, oftentimes people wanted their, wanted their money, wanted their land. So I'm wondering, um, and you may not know the answer to this. So the relatively few men that are accused in proportion, do they have links to the women accused or were they sort of independent? Almost all of them, almost all the men who are accused are related to a woman who's accused. They are the brothers, the husbands, the sons of accused witches, of, of accused female witches. Um, so I think, again, even in the, in the smaller percentage of men who are accused, they're usually related to women who are accused. So you have a whole family that's accused. Wow. Okay. Um, so I'm, I'm curious about the idea of, um, I know when we study Salem, you know, you just said 19 people were executed. I think it was like 100 people were um, accused. Um, 
Is that typical? Were there typically these outbreaks where people feared a lot of witches? Or was it more a, a, a one-time thing? Like there's someone in the community and they're like, yeah, there's something wrong with her. Yeah, so Salem was really not the norm. And that's sort of the danger of studying Salem as an example of witchcraft cases. Um, the number of people accused, the number of people jailed, the number of people executed is just wildly out of line with the patterns both before and after. Um, I do like to emphasize, though, that accusations of witchcraft were really common. Um People joke today that Americans are overly litigious, like they're taking people to court for silly things. They were taking people to, if you go through some of these records, they were taking people to court. I found one where a, a neighbor is smoking too close to his house, and so he's going to take them to court over this. I mean, really ridiculous things. Um, so general accusations, like sort of informally, oh, goody so-and-so is a witch, as well as actual formal accusations in court, they're really, really common. But what isn't common is a guilty verdict. So by and large, the courts in New England do not, they don't declare that witches are guilty. Occasionally when they do, it's very rare that it actually proceeds to an execution. Um, so it's really important that Salem is different, but also that witchcraft accusations are common. Okay. Um, so I'm wondering, I know you study uh, some of the um, earlier situations and I was wondering if you could talk about um, these two cases that are Absolutely. before Salem. Yeah, yeah, great. Um, so the two cases that I've worked on, they're both Mar named Mary. Uh, so Mary Parsons, uh, and she's in Northampton, and she's involved in two trials uh, in 1656 and 1674. And then uh, Mary Webster, and she's in Hadley, in, and her case is in 1683. They're really different cases, so I think they set up some some interesting contrasts and examples to Salem that we can, we can talk more about too. Um, so I'll talk about each one of those. Is that all right? Oh, that's perfect. Okay. Um, so Mary Parsons was actually a woman of very high uh, standing in her community. Uh, so she's in Northampton. She is married to the wealthiest man in town, and they have a really large family, uh, very successful. Um, so she doesn't kind of fit with what we assume uh, about a lot of common traits uh, among witches of the time. Again, witches in square scare quotes. Um, it seems that really what happened is that she wasn't very well liked. Um, a 19th century historian said that her neighbors found her, quote, a woman of forcible speech and domineering ways. Um, so look out for that. Um, she seems to have had a lot of conflict in particular with one neighbor named Sarah Bridgman. And Sarah was from a much less wealthy family and had many sickly children, including um, when you look back at the records, there's kind of this tragic note in the in the records where you can see that the first recorded birth in the new settlement of Northampton is one of Mary Parsons's children, and the first recorded death in the same settlement is one of Sarah Bridgman's children. So what we see is really one family that's on the rise, doing great, and another family that's clearly not doing well. And this is both in terms like financially, but as well as the, the health and well-being of their family members. Um, so apparently Sarah made comments about Mary being a witch, and you you might imagine that that kind of thing would happen. You know, you, you don't know why your children are, are sickly and her children seem healthy. Um, so she's making these comments in the community. So Mary's husband, Joseph Parsons, initiates a slander trial against Sarah Bridgman, basically saying, stop calling my wife a witch, or you've been calling my wife a witch and you should mm -hmm. stop. Um, 
This is a really important strategy. And we see this in other cases, including examples in Salem. Basically, it's really damaging socially to be called a witch. So people would bring a suit for slander against someone, which is something we still do today, right? Um, But just like today, it's a dangerous tactic because it could bring more publicity to an accusation. Um, But Joseph Parson actually wins the slander case against Sarah Bridgman. But what's kind of interesting is that her penalty is that she either has to make a public apology or pay a fine. And remember, the Bridgmans are really poor, but they choose to pay the fine rather than make a public apology. Yeah. Which sort of suggests that the bad blood is continuing. Um, So the slander trial's over. The Parsonses are vindicated, sort of. Um, But it has also put into the public record, into the legal record, all of the claims that have been made about Mary, not just by Sarah, but by other people who have heard things about Mary. Um, So in 1674, Sarah Bridgman dies. Again, Sarah's the one who had been spreading the rumors. And her husband, James, decides to accuse Mary Parsons of witchcraft and believes that Mary Parsons has actually caused Sarah to die. So this is where it's an actual witchcraft trial where Mary Parsons is being accused. However, as with most cases, the courts acquit her. They say, no, there's not evidence here to suggest that this person's a witch. Um, And many people at the time said that this was because her husband had enough money to buy off the judges. And in fact, it is a little bit shady because her husband's a business partner of one of the judges. Um, So it's kind of interesting the way money and wealth and standing works in this case, because it seems like it could have been the family's wealth and visibility that made them a target but it's also the wealth that allows them to pursue the slander case. And it's possibly the wealth that allows them to uh, extricate themselves, shall we say, from these accusations. Um, they, they actually, they leave Northampton. They don't return after, the, after they have their trial. I find it so fascinating to think about that um, the court system both believes that witches could exist, but they still acquit most. Yes, So they accept these, you know, people come to the court and say, this person's a witch, and they write that down diligently, and they take all the evidence, but again and again, they say, no, we don't have enough evidence, because they have some standards of evidence and and standards of what they'll accept in a legal term for someone being a witch. So clearly they could, like, it was within the realm of possibilities for the courts to say, yes, this person's a witch, but again and again, they, they didn't do that. So all the things we hear, you know, the the standards for testing if you're a witch, if they throw you in the water and you sink, you must not be. <laughs> Those aren't really true. It's more of a calling in witnesses and cross-examining and things like that. Those tests are really funny, and we see examples of those all over the place. They they aren't common in New England trials, but actually that um, the Chesapeake case that I mentioned um, of, uh, now her name is escaping me, of uh, oh, Grace Sherwood, they did that. They did the floating test where they throw her in the water. Um, so that's sort of a strange example. So it clearly did happen in some cases, but it didn't happen. It didn't happen in any of the cases that I saw in New England. So um, what about Mary Webster? Oh, yeah. So uh, Mary Webster is a, is a big contrast um, and fits a lot more with what we assume about witches. So she's a marginalized woman. She is married, but she and her husband have no children, which is unusual and rem- sort of at the time would have been would have been odd. Um, and they were really poor. They relied on town charity and they lived in a small house that was actually provided by the town. So they're relying on the goodness of other people. And remember, we want to imagine that these are all resource strapped people. It's not like they have a lot of extra money or a lot of extra resources to to provide. So um, 
She apparently isn't very nice about receiving charity, um, which is a troubling thing that I want, you know, I want to, I don't really want to go along with that idea that she should have been grateful and good to everyone, but she apparently was really unhappy, basically. Um, And in 1683, she is formally accused of witchcraft. Basically, her neighbors think that she's been doing all sorts of things in town. But again, with like with Mary Parsons case, she's acquitted. The courts say, no, we don't have evidence that she's a witch. Um, And this is really where Mary Webster's case gets interesting. Um, The sources are a bit hazy. There's a few different versions of this story. But according to several accounts, folks in town were really unhappy about the verdict. And they decided to hang Mary anyway. So basically, um, there's a man in town, an important man named Philip Smith, and he becomes very, very ill. Strange things are happening to him. He's clearly, I mean, from what we could figure, he's hallucinating. He's terribly ill. And he cries out that Mary Webster is the person afflicting him. So the townspeople go off to find Mary. And supposedly when they tied her up, like they tied her hands, Philip Smith felt ease, felt comforted. And so this was evidence to them that Mary was causing, even though he's, she's not actually touching him in any way, right. but, but that somehow she was causing this disease. So this is the point where they decide, well, if we tie her up and it helps the, Philip Smith, clearly if we kill her, it will help him even more. So they, um, they take her to a tree and they hang her. But we first want to note, this is an extrajudicial killing. This is not anything that the courts had condoned. This is not something that was supposed to happen. Um, But apparently, um, they didn't do things right. And the next morning, they came back to the tree, and Mary Webster was still alive. Hmm. So if there's anything that's going to make people think you're a witch... I would say it's not dying when they hang you for being a witch. Um, So she goes on to live for another 12 years. Philip Smith dies. uh, And uh, it's just kind of an amazing case. There's also a a fun footnote, which is that she is an ancestor of Margaret Atwood, who's the writer of The Handmaid's Tale, uh, which is a big Netflix series now. But she also wrote a poem called Half Hanged Mary that's about Mary Webster. I will have to look for that. So it's did really she leave town after surviving the hanging or did she? No, she stayed right there. She didn't really have the means to go anywhere. Um, but from what we know, we don't actually have a lot of details on what happens afterwards for her. But as best we can tell, it seems that she just stayed there in her tiny little home in, in Hadley. Wow. Okay. Well, shifting back to Salem, um, you know, it's such a huge outbreak there of, of you know, it seems like a snowball effect of accusations Mm -hmm. and trials. And I'm wondering why you think or why others think it happened in Salem at that time. Yeah. So there's so many theories about Salem. So I don't like to ascribe to any single one of them because I think there's there's a lot. I like to pick and choose little bits of a variety of them. Um, a couple of the reasons that I think are important is uh, one is the fact that they that Salem used a different court system. So I just talked about how again and again the court said no, we don't have enough evidence to say this person is a witch. Um, but in Salem, for a variety of different political reasons that I won't go into, um, they establish a court that they call the Court of Oyer and Terminer, which is to hear and decide. It's Latin. Uh, I'm probably butchering 
the pronunciation, but it means to hear and decide. So basically, it's like an expedited legal system. And let's face it, every time in our nation's history when we have decided, oh, we're just going to streamline this legal system, it's been a disaster, right? It's it's a bad idea. Um, so basically, this system is set up for conviction. Um, a key part of it is that they accept spectral evidence. And spectral evidence would be basically, I would say, I was at my home and uh, this Goody Sue over here sent her specter to me and injured me or killed my cat or whatever it is that I said that you did. And that was literally accepted as evidence. So my claim that your specter came to me was now evidence. And that was not the case in previous trials. So you can imagine that it's pretty easy to convict someone if that's your standard of of evidence, right? Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah. So there's a bunch of other factors at work, though, um, that I think are are interesting, too. So Mary Beth Norton has a book uh, from 2002 called In the Devil's Snare, The Salem Witchcraft Crisis of 1692. And she presents some really compelling evidence that uh, the events in Salem were influenced by what was going on in the Puritans' conflicts with Native American tribes in the area. So she looks at, there are some um, massacres in Maine in 1689 during King William's War. Um, She tracks some of the refugees from these battles, and it turns out that many of them end up in Salem. Some of them are the girls who become accusers. So she suggests the possibility that this is a community as well as individuals who are suffering from PTSD. So this is trauma that has affected them. So both some of the physical things that the girls are feeling, so they talk about pinpricks for one thing, um, as well as their their terror and horror about what's happening to them, that that's coming from real lived trauma that they had before. And I think there's some really interesting possibilities there to think about what was going on for the girls who were making the accusations. Um, Emerson Bay Baker has a book, A Storm of Witchcraft, from 2015, and he argues that the girls were not faking their symptoms, but they suffered from conversion disorder or mass hysteria. So it's sort of somewhat related to the trauma theory as well. But um, so, again, these are theories that the girls were suffering from something. And because they didn't have the scientific language to figure out their symptoms or their illnesses, that, you know, things escalated from there. There's also some... Uh, fringe theories out there that your students may have have heard of um, that it was ergot poisoning that they got from eating yep, moldy bread. That's the one I always hear. <laughs> yeah, that one is very popular. There's another medical theory that it was uh, encephalitis. Um, so here's the thing with those: um, I, they're interesting, and I know people get really excited about the idea that the girls were on an LSD trip from the ergot poisoning or something, yeah. but. Even if we could diagnose a medical situation from this distance in time, which we can't, even if we knew that was the the medical reason, that alone doesn't explain what happened, right? Like all of the other social order, the religious beliefs, the legal system, all of those have to exist as well in order for what happened in Salem to happen. So I think, you know, those are intriguing tidbits, but you still have to overlay that with all of the social uh, and religious beliefs that, that were there. Otherwise, them having these strange symptoms wouldn't have ended in the execution of 19 people. Right. No, that makes that makes perfect sense, and I'm not sure why that that's the story everyone's heard. I mean, it must be in a textbook somewhere or or something. But I I hear that every single semester. You know, someone Absolutely. in the midst of talking about it will raise their hand and explain <laughs> it all. And it's like, well, maybe, but probably not. <laughs> Yeah, it it amazes me that that is the theory that people get so excited about. (laughs) But I mean, I guess it's sort of, it's 
comforting, right? Because you don't have to blame mm-hmm. anyone. You don't have to, um, you know, you can sort of let go and say, oh, it was something external that excuses this horrible behavior. And I don't know why PTSD doesn't serve that kind of same, more compassionate mm-hmm. interpretation, but, but yeah, the, the bad, bad bread seems to be the, <laughs> the answer. So I'm wondering when, how did they resolve this in Salem? I mean, did they eventually change their mind? Did they quit accusing people? Did it just, you kill enough people and you think we got rid of the witches or <laughs> what happens? Yeah. So obviously there's a huge number of trials happening in 1692. It's it's shocking, but there were trials also in other places. So Fairfield, Connecticut also has an outbreak and it's, it's much smaller, but it's still, it's many of the same kinds of things, but they don't end up executing anyone. Um, what happens in Salem, I think, is basically that they escalated their accusations higher and higher up. The, so, so you know, early on, they're accusing mar- very marginalized women, women who are on the outskirts of society, whether it's economically or socially. Um, and that was easy, uh, put that in quotation marks, to have that person, you know, sent off for execution. But as they start targeting women who are women and men sometimes, but mostly women who are higher up in the social order, uh, people start being a little bit more skeptical. So uh, at a certain point they actually the girls accuse the governor's wife and at that point the governor says wait maybe we need to pause things a little bit here uh, which is interesting um so i think that that's a a key reason um it's important to note that there are voices all along that are trying to slow things down Uh, there's a group of people who write letters you know and so eventually i think also some of that protest some of that resistance also has some effect although unfortunately not soon enough to be able to stop the so many executions. Um, Salem does kind of put a stop to the trials more widely. So they they slow down a lot after that in New England. You don't see as many. There's like a couple that bubble up. The Grace Sherwood case in the in the Chesapeake is in 1706. There's a case in Maine in, in 1725. There's this incredibly late case in Ipswich, Massachusetts, which is right by Salem in 1878, which I only recently actually wow. looked at. Um because I was I was like, oh yeah, when is the last last one exactly? But it's so it's billed in like a lot of internet sites uh, to say it's the last uh, witch trial in in uh, in the United States, but it's dismissed by the courts for one thing. So I'm not sure it counts as an actual trial. And it's also actually about mesmerism. It's uh, someone who's involved in the Christian Science Movement at the time, which is a new re- new growing religion at the time. And it's not really a witchcraft case. So it kind of retroactively gets called a witchcraft case, but I don't think it really counts. But I think 1725 by then, we really, that's the latest one that I've looked at. Uh, in any depth. So things really, really stopped after Salem because I think people realized how out of control it had all gotten. Um, so as you know, since I've, I've talked to you before, I ask everyone to imagine that their subjects uh, had their own Instagram accounts back in the day. And, you know, what kind, I'm curious as we think about them in sort of a more modern context, what, what hashtags would they use to identify themselves or describe themselves. So I'm, I'm curious, for example, what would Mary Parsons hashtag be? Oh, certainly not guilty would be 
all of their hashtags, right? That that's what they would be uh, be saying. Um, I also wonder um, about the Me Too hashtag and to what extent these women were maybe experiencing harassment and certainly sexism, uh, since it's largely women that are being accused, particularly in the case of Mary Webster in Hadley, leading up to her accusation. She's clearly being harassed by her the people who live in her town who are coming into her home and beating her, actually, um, because they say that, that that'll That'll make it easier for them to pass by her house if they first come in and beat her. It's it's really nonsensical. Yeah. So I I often think about the about the that hashtag and the idea of the kind of harassment that they're dealing with. Um, for Mary Parsons, you know, she's a, a wealthy, well-off woman. So I think some of the Instagram influencers and folks with that are in a good social position, you know, where they're maybe showing off their homes, it does sound from the records like she was a little bit like that, perhaps that she was um, too good for the community. So I wonder if she might look like one of those uh, Instagram influencers with her, with her happy family and her large amount of money, at least for the time. Yeah, I'm thinking a real housewife of Northampton, you know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Definitely. So if someone was involved, like one of the judges or the, you know, girls that start the accusations in Salem, how might they identify with a hashtag? I think that they... I do think that a lot of them truly believed that they were being bewitched and that they were under threat and that they needed to get rid of these witches that for the most part, I think that's true. So I think there'd be a lot of uh, hashtags that were, you know, insisting that these are really witches in the same way that we sometimes see hashtags, people claiming this is a witch trial, right? Uh, yes. Sort of indignant about this. We, you know, we're under threat. Um, our, the way, our way of life is under threat. Our social order is under threat. So I, I think that, that they were true believers for the most part. I was going to say that's something every time I see it in, in a 21st century context, it bothers me. It's like, no, this is not a witch trial. No one's going to execute you. No one's, you know, you're not a female, you are, you know, not in danger. And so, yeah, I think it's interesting how that has, I feel like we've almost become so desensitized to this and how we think of, think of what happened in Salem in, Instead of, instead of it being, oh, how tragic, 19 people lost their lives, it just becomes like, wow, mass hysteria. Look at it in, in action. Yeah, I'm kind of interested in what like the hashtag witch trial means to people who are using it, actually, because what what version of witch trial are they are they thinking of, and what perspective on witch trial are they are they thinking of? Uh, seems a, a really important question, and I would agree we've been desensitized to it because people throw it around all the time about all sorts of things that don't bear any resemblance, as far as I can see, to the witch trials that I'm familiar with, or even Salem. So I've never. Um, I've only been to Boston and Northampton and Massachusetts, but if I were to go to Salem, would there be, I mean, I assume they commemorate this in some way, probably in good ways and bad ways. Oh my goodness. Salem has made an industry of their witchcraft trials. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated by this. I've gone there a bunch and done a little bit of research on it. Um, so there is a really, really beautiful memorial in the center of town. Um, it's, I'm forgetting what year it was, maybe nine, it was, I think it was in the 1990s. Um, it's in the center of town. You can walk through it and there's a, a stone bench for each of the uh, victims of, of the ex, of those who are executed. We also want to acknowledge that it's not just those who were executed, but those whose lives were 
really ruined. Um, many of them were in jail for a long time. Um, so, th- so it's it's a very nice, uh, thoughtful memorial. However, it is literally surrounded by an incredible number of trashy museums. I'm, I'm sorry, but I just can't. There's like a wax museum. There's a museum of pirates. They're all like blasting spooky music. Um, in October, it goes bonkers there. They just have a like a constant Halloween festival for the entire month of October. Um, they sort of revel in this whole, and I'm going to like in double square co- square <laughs> scare quotes, this wit, this idea of the wit. So there's people running around, you know, with the pointy hats and the brooms and the green painted faces that just really seems to ignore that. No, we're talking about the execution of people for for something they didn't do, something that wasn't happening. So it's a it's a fascinating thing. I think Salem has tried um, more recently to deal with it, to have better some uh, museum exhibits that are a little bit better. But I think they've lost that battle by now. They're literally their uh, their water tower and their police cars have an image of a, po- a pointy hat witch on a broom. Like they, they're the witch city. And so they're just going to run with that image. Um, seems hard to, to pull back from that at this point. See, now I have to go. And I want to see Lowell too. It's um, I've never been to Massachusetts except for to do research. So I'm sort of in and out, but um, I do, I do want to see all of that and, and to be appalled and mesmerized at the same time. Yeah, there's like animatronic figures and you can go you can go to a witch trial like they they bring the crowd in and you pretend that you're accusing this woman. It's it's pretty gruesome. It's it's hard to imagine another similar situation where we would allow this manner of reenactment and performance in relation to the execution of people. But there it is. Well, thank you so much. I feel like uh, we're going to have a much better understanding of this whole phenomenon. Um, I hope so. I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. It was great to be here and uh, come check out Salem. (laughs) I will. Thanks. Podtextualizing the Past was created by Susan Stanfield. Assistant Professor of History at the University of Texas at El Paso and is produced by Adrian Mesa from UTEP's Creative Studios.